This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about the art, literature, music, film and much more that have influenced them and inspire them today and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Pablo Bronstein, who through beautifully executed drawings and performance and video reflects on the architecture, design and cultural traditions of mostly pre-20th century eras and what they tell us about the role of aesthetic taste, both when they were made and as we see them today. Pablo's work is often funny, though with a sardonic edge, and its impact is heightened by the fact that it's also deeply learned. His knowledge of the intricacies, pretensions, quirks and excesses of art, design and architectural history is crucial to the effectiveness and precision of his work. Pablo was born in Buenos Aires in Argentina in 1977, but came to the UK as a child and grew up in suburban London. He went to the Slade School of Art and then Goldsmiths College and emerged onto the art scene in London in the early 2000s, period characterised by hugely disparate practices among artists reacting to the brashness that had come to characterise the 1990s era of the young British artists. Though often associated with a group of artists at the core of London's Herald Street Gallery, Pablo's art has always been hugely distinctive, partly because of the nature and breadth of his references. He now divides his time between London and Deal on the coast of Kent in southern England. Among his most significant early projects was a guide to postmodern architecture in London. Published as a book in satirical homage to a historical architectural almanac, it featured supremely elegant drawings of key postmodern buildings of London, realised in a style that clearly evoked the architectural fantasies of Giovanni Battista Piranesi from the 18th century. Here, mimicking Piranesian semi-ruined splendour, Pablo was commenting on postmodernity's decline, its deep unpopularity in the early 21st century. As someone deeply invested in analysis, the aesthetics of the past, Bronstein's recent sequel to the postmodern architecture book Pseudo-Georgian London uses that similarly antique drawing style to explore the ubiquitous and artless parodies of Georgian architecture across the UK capital. As he says, for most of us it seems a cheap yellow brick facade evokes almost effortlessly a rosy, everlasting British prosperity. His fascination with pastiche led to a group of magnificent drawings of Paternoster Square, the postmodern stage-set piazza, as Pablo calls it, an illusion of public space on what's actually private land near St Paul's Cathedral, with a ridiculous Corinthian column at its centre that's actually an elaborate cover for an air vent. One drawing imagined the erection of the column as if it were done in ancient times with a wooden scaffold and ropes, a witty nod to its pretensions to historical authenticity, which are undermined by even the slightest glance. We are reflecting in the architecture we create, Pablo writes in the pseudo-Georgian book. Sometimes his architectural fantasies are constructed as large-scale installations, which often act as the backdrop to performances. At Tate Britain in London in 2016, for instance, he elaborated on the gallery's existing neoclassical and postmodern buildings with Baroque stylings to create the setting for the performance piece Historical Dances in an Antique Setting, in which three dancers continually moved along architecturally proportioned lines marked on the gallery floor, blending gestures of Baroque choreography and particularly the elegant movements associated with Sprezzatura, which Pablo discussed 
verses later with the everyday movements of minimalist choreography typified by choreographers like Yvonne Rayner. That work exemplified Pablo's interest in exploring camp and queer aesthetics, both in his drawings and performances. And with that deep knowledge of visual cultures, Pablo responds brilliantly to museum commissions. In 2009, his show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York was a rich response to both the museum and its collections. And this year, he's created what I think is his magnum opus, a project for the Sir John Soane Museum in London, the extraordinary environment in the home of Soane, one of the great architects and formers of taste in the 18th century. Hell in its heyday, Pablo's project for the Soane Museum proves that there could not be a more perfect match between artist and venue. Pablo admits to having been obsessed with the museum since he was a student. It features a group of large-scale watercolours that present a vision of hell in glorious colour and vivid detail, an extravagant allegory of human folly and the illusion of progress, both exhilarating and sobering. As well as the watercolours, the show features a new video that again references diverse forms of choreography and movement, as well as taking an ironic view of the antique setting of the Sone Museum. And I began our conversation by asking Pablo about the two main strands of his output, and if he sees his drawings and choreographic pieces as a singular body of work, or as distinct forms of practice. The drawings are an activity that I do in private uh, and the performances invariably are made with other people and on a more institutional level. They, that's how they're created. They're, they're made because I'm either asked to do one or because um, I have the space where one will be shown or because I'm imagining showing it in a space in particular, whereas the drawings are, are, are really just me at a desk. Um, so they are produced with different ideas of an audience in mind and a different idea of the space in which they should be shown. But they're both connected in the sense that I have the same imagery working for both very often. And in that collaborative practice, does that offer a kind of decompression from the sort of very intense personal activity of the drawing to a certain degree? Is sharing ideas with others, working up ideas with others, a kind of means of gaining some sort of sense of distance from the from the very intimate process of drawing? Yes, absolutely. It's a sort of letting off of steam in a way because you can have a laugh, you can sort of try things out in a very light-hearted manner. You can also sort of bring in as many opinions as you as you really want i very often work really collaboratively with with a few particular people and a lot of making a performance for me at the moment is about relinquishing control of certain areas letting other people do things that may relate to their practice or their interests and to incorporate that into my work um whereas with the drawings it's me and the references um it's a it's a very very private experience um that said the truth is that performance whether in museums or anywhere else at least with me goes as far as the people that have witnessed the performance you can see the documentation but it's actually relatively limited numbers whereas an exhibition with some drawings might really receive thousands and thousands of visits which means that its relationship to the public is actually a lot bigger i'm used to seeing your work in its finished form, fully worked up, extremely intricate. So I'm wondering about the sort of hinterland of those works. Is is there a kind of sketchy form that they originally take? And have you ever shown those? Because I'm not aware of any manifestation of that kind. They don't really exist 
in any form other than they're in. They start off very often drawn directly onto the piece of paper that they're going to be finished in. So I might have one or two, if if the drawing is going to be something that I know will be shown publicly and I know will be large scale and I don't want to make significant changes once it's started, um, I will start maybe on a couple of very, very loose, sketchy pieces of paper, like scrap paper, but very often I'll work directly onto the final piece of paper in pencil and make the changes in pencil before anything else happens. Sometimes I'll leave those corrections. There are types of drawings that end up quite detailed, but they start off in pen rather sketchily, and those are the ones that I will do when I'm illustrating a book, like, for example, the pseudo-Georgian book or the postmodern architecture in London book, which will have mistake lines left in because it's part of the kind of jotted-down aesthetic that I'm going for. I wanted to explore the idea of your kind of personal position, because on the one hand, it seems clear to me that you're an utter enthusiast. There's so much intimate knowledge of design style, architectural history, movements within the history of art, etc. But there's also a pronounced sort of satire, a sardonic element to your work. And do you see those two as kind of vital companions, if you like, in, in the sort of mode of your work? I mean, satire and irony are kind of intrinsic to me as a as an individual, but also possibly to my generation or to people that grew up in the 1970s or 80s. I think that there's a kind of postmodern modus operandi that I'm to some extent working within. But I have to love the subject matter enough in order to critique it, to incorporate it in a jokey way. If not, it would just be a sort of humorless sort of bashing of, you know, history, which would be sort of pointless for everyone, really. I'm not a diehard classicist. or or someone who believes that the past is necessarily better. I sort of live in the present with a lot of these sort of relics from the past, um, whether it's sort of 1980s or, you know, 1680s. But the presence of these objects now feels as real as, you know, as anything that's sort of made contemporaneously. In Hell in Its Heyday, which is this extraordinary exhibition you have at the Sir John Soane Museum in London at the moment as we speak there is a really interesting, very subtly expressed, but very much their element of autobiography. And I wonder how much should we see autobiography as a thread running through all of your work, or is it in some way a sort of new addition for this particular body of work? Autobiography runs everywhere through my work involuntarily. So I will make work that in my mind evokes things from the past, whatever it might be, whether it's in Argentina or my childhood or the things that have had an impact on me or or whatever it might be. But in the Sony Museum, you're right, there are sort of allegorical elements. There are kind of emblems that form a kind of allegory of my life, maybe, or episodes in my life. Um, But they're not necessarily complicated. In a way, they're, they're allegories in the 17th century style really because um, maybe an unbelievably complicated painting by Rubens the final allegory might be time conquers love or the triumph of death or the defeat of you know whatever it might be there might be an allegory of a continent for example or there might be um, an allegory of the fame of you know, the Duke of Alba or something like that. And actually, these aren't particularly complicated messages, really. They're built up in a very complicated way because each element ties it. So, you know, I've done a bit of that in the show. The, the actual 
might represent my childhood in a very basic way in Argentina or some kind of a holiday thing or something like that. But I mean, the way they're built up is a lot more complicated than what it is, you know. One thing I was struck by when I was looking at Helen its heyday was this this sort of burst of colour that seems to have come with this body of work. Colour has always been a tremendously important element of your work. It's played very powerful roles, particularly representing particular styles or, or periods of history. But in this body of work, perhaps I'm wrong, but it seems to me that there has been an unleashing of colour that, that hasn't been there before. Is that is that fair? Y- yes. What's really different now is that I'm using colour to build the picture up. Whereas before I applied colour onto a worked up drawing in the way that was true to type when I was referring to 17th and 18th and 19th century architectural drawing or prints, where these things would be printed out or drawn and then they would go to another hand and this hand would sort of splosh colour onto them to say demarcate which areas were floor and which were rooms where the light would be hitting uh, a bit of fabric rather than a bit of brick. So that's how you know colour was used or if not if it was a sort of more representational scene like a theatre scene these prints would go off uh, to workshops where sort of very very uh, poor women and children would basically be paid in the 18th century to splosh some colour on them very very quickly in order to try to get a bigger price for them so so I was always painting in that way and I still colour in the prints in that way um, which is to essentially go over it with a very straightforward colour wash um, over a sort of demarcated area and now because of the time I spent during lockdown looking at works by the impressionists and so on I'm using colour in order to create shape more I've never really done that before. You mentioned the impressionists there and that was actually a reference that, that seemed to me to be unexpected in your work was it unexpected to you? I've always liked the Impressionists, and especially the post-Impressionists, actually, but they seemed important to bring in when I was looking at this sort of period around the late 19th century when the idea of empire is at its height, when this um, urban sort of society in the West becomes all-consuming. It's the art of, you know, the boulevards, you know, it's, it's the big art that was being made in London, Paris and New York and that's crucial to, to the feeling of the show but it's also part of the debate around Beaux-Arts and its critique which is also running through the show. And I wanted to talk about structures of power and critiques of power because one of the perceptions you talk about about the sort of generational sense of irony that's very prevalent of, in your generation but also there is a tremendous political conviction there actually and particularly about the structures of power behind presentation of buildings for instance and, and, and artworks. So I'm interested in this balance between a certain sincerity or political conviction and again that irony or sardonicism that dominates the work. So so often today politics seems linked to activism. You'd never call yourself an activist but nonetheless there is there is a conviction there that actually runs right the way through your work from the beginning right? Yes I think the work is very queer it's very camp there's a lot of sort of camp content like for example the the picture of the harlequins on holiday on the immediate surface there's a whole bunch of young men sort of chirpsing a woman as she sort of talks to them by the side of the pool but it is a very queer image it relates more than anything to when young gay men would take as a chaperone a woman very often an older woman to uh, resort some you know places like fire island and 
they would pretend to the outside world, the woman knew perfectly well what was going on, they would pretend to the outside world that they were courting her in order that they would be able to go and have sex by themselves somewhere else. And that was tolerated very often by, you know, the hotel people and so on and so forth. So it's about sort of simulating heterosexual behaviour or sort of overdone heterosexual behaviour for the sake of essentially carrying on a homosexual lifestyle behind the scenes. Um, So there is a lot of queer references. There is the reference to the world of the burlesque and um, the music hall and the ballet and uh, clowning and the circus because they were areas where homosexuality could be performed relatively publicly or for the, for the public to not be surprised it was happening or to not ask any questions. It was enough that that whole area was seen as disreputable. Like, for example, the way that um, if someone wants to become a hairdresser in certain countries, the assumption is that that man is going to be gay. So all you need to do is tell people that you're a hairdresser and they will somehow know that that's what's going on and they there's a sort of don't ask, don't tell policy. So there there is a lot of content around this sort of stuff but you're right it's not holding a placard up and saying gay rights or lgbtq plus rights i don't consider that sort of art queer art i find it straightforwardly political art activism but uh, queer art for me is always about pretense and working through shadows and other narratives um i grew up looking at entirely straight films uh the only experience i could possibly have of seeing myself represented in mainstream hollywood was to weirdly put myself within a heterosexual scene on the big screen for example so i mean my generation grew up living mainstream culture through a distorted lens through through a sort of side glance certainly earlier generations even more so really and so that i think has led to an ironic stance that isn't void of politics if that makes sense you know it's all about talking about something via another platform or via another history but nonetheless there is a real need for it it is not for me sort of dull pomo art in which everything is questioned because everything is just image if that makes sense Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? Picasso, because, uh, I mean, my parents from the 60s, I think they probably had a Picasso book at home or something. I think we went to see a Picasso show when we were in Barcelona on holiday when, when I was very young. I think it had a good deal of impact. I, I started to make these drawings of doves, kind of cubist birds, basically, when I was very, very young. I think uh, before then, I was obviously influenced by Disney cartoons and things like that. You know, if, I mean, that, that is, you know, work by major artists, but they're not, it's not Pantheon major artists. And that's interesting because I've read that you began making drawings of buildings early on. So were they buildings from Disney cartoons then? Y- yes, or other cartoons, you know, or, or, or other books. But yes, children's culture, you know. But Picasso was the artist that I think impacted me as a brand name artist I was really pretty young actually for that to happen but um, my parents are quite cultured so it it wasn't like I discovered 
you know, art when I was 18 or anything. Yeah, I mean, it's true because I think I think that's right. One always expects just, and this is my own personal experience apart from anything else, but it's Warhol and Dali who seem to make a sort of connection to so many people because in a way it's the, the straightforwardness is so palpable. Whereas with Picasso, it's it felt like I had to learn that language. So it is quite unusual to be. Well, but I, I, I say that, but to be honest, I mean, Dali was also pretty much up there. I mean, you know, it's the kind of stuff that a middle-class family might have in their bookshelf. My, me and my parents... I mean, we, we were certainly not rich growing up. My parents were young academics, but they were the books that young academics might have, you know, like didn't have a hugely extensive art library. There, there would have been a book on Dali and a book on Picasso and maybe a book on Escher or, do you know what I mean? That sort of stuff. That was probably enough, actually. Were there books on architecture? No, no. But there was there was always an interest in architecture that I had that was fairly unexplained, actually. My parents aren't particularly interested in it at all. That's extraordinary. And of course, you studied architecture to begin with, didn't you? you? For a very, very short period. A very short period, like a couple of weeks, really. You know, but when you start drawing things as a kid, people just assume that they read the content of the drawings as what you want to do. Where if, you know, if someone draws a picture of a fire engine, they don't say, oh, that's a contemporary artist wanting to dedicate their working practice to drawing fire engines. They think they would want to be a fireman. So I sort of did that with buildings. I drew a lot of buildings and I thought I wanted to be an architect. And I, I sort of convinced myself of that. And then I obviously got to architecture school and realised that architecture has got nothing to do with buildings. <laughs> Which historical artist do you turn to the most today? Piranesi, for obvious reasons. He's an artist who is unbelievably contemporary in that he's very engaged with subject matter beyond the creation of prints um so he draws these fantastic ruins but they're also architectural propositions and they are ways of understanding history and of distorting history he used them as part of a rather spurious antiques business so he would promote these weird dodgy fakes through these prints and then sell them to english aristocrats some of which people are still only now realizing are actually total fakes that were produced by his studio and they've been sort of sitting in country houses for centuries you know so he's a, he's a very very sophisticated guy in that sense you know aside from the fact that his prints are unbelievably profound and complex and it must be hugely significant to you therefore to be in the same museum where Piranesi is obviously a very powerful presence and be you know near to him as it were yes I mean I'm not a fan of other humans that have made art you know so when I get told by some collector or something oh you've got to come because we're having a dinner for blah blah and they're going to be there I just think I don't give a fuck you know? <laughs> um, and so actually you know so I don't worship at the shrine of Son or Piranesi as humans but I, I love what they did so yeah it's a sort of pleasure to to do that but that, that said the Sony Museum is a you know is a perfect work of art almost you know at your peril do you plonk something in the middle of it um, and so I was quite happy to to keep myself to the side there. It's interesting, in the same show, the work that is closest to the collection, to the, that isn't sort of in its discrete space of the exhibition galleries, is actually a video work. And it seems to me that that must have been a very deliberate decision, that the language yeah. is so entirely different that it can't be slotted in alongside it, as it were. Yeah, it, it was. And also, the, the times when I have put works in that were very, very, very close. I mean, talking about sort of antique frames and sort of a coloration that is, you know, antique and so on. When I've done that in the past in historic interiors, like, for example, there's a few drawings I, I put up in Chatsworth House within their sort of hang. I got this 
awful sense of vertigo because I just almost couldn't quite see the work, you know, and I, I really didn't like it. So I kind of, you know, it's a deliberate thing to sort of create those parameters. Besides, the whole point of some of these old frames or this stuff is is also that it sort of reacts against, you know, contemporary showing techniques. You know, there's there's a way that, say, a gold frame behaves against that is challenging or, or disruptive in a way even of course if it gets co-opted by the market which it does but uh, nonetheless it still antagonizes I, for example there are plenty of collectors who might buy my work but certainly wouldn't hang it because it you know antique gold frames don't sit particularly well in certain sorts of interiors for example that's really interesting but are you aware of whether your work is in collections alongside 18th century prints or, or 17th century drawings or whatever do people see that lineage when they look at your work do collectors see you within that lineage? very little actually very little and there are very few collectors that have that kind of scope and there were I mean certainly there are public collections like the British Museum for example that really do contextualize things like that but no not no, I think most collectors are completely disinterested in creating that sort of breadth of dialogue Let's talk about contemporary artists. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? Yeah, like I said before, I don't really admire other human beings. You um, can talk about their work if you like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Mark Leckie. I think his his films are always rich and sophisticated and visually stimulating and deep. And they always leave you more. Watching one of his films is not a mercy fuck. Do you know what I mean? It's it's <laughs> You get more than you put into it. And, you know, I want to sing a little bit about my generation, which historically has actually been quite ignored. You know, uh, the sort of Lily Plender, Monster Chetwind, Sepatani, lots of artists of my age who, because of how time was slotted to us as a generation, we were very bullied by the what came before and what came after somehow. But I think we all, you know, make work that, is quite unusual in one way or another, you know. It was, from a distance, it, I perceived it as a group because of, of Herald Street's existence as a gallery, Nicky Verber, who was, of course, an artist himself and then basically became a gallerist and then incorporated the people that you're talking about into that kind of project. Yeah, some, so, I, think, I think Lily Plenders with Maureen, but yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah that's true, yeah. yeah. But but just, you know, certainly you and, and Monster at yeah. the time. Yeah. So that's one thing that's, that always struck me, that it was a kind of distinct group of people who seemed to be sharing lots of ideas, even though actually the work looked very different in lots of different ways. I, I think it? it did, but it was all... We were quite disparate, but I think we were all making quite odd work, you know, that didn't necessarily fit into the kind of consensus contemporary art that that is everywhere, basically, and that gets everywhere. I, I think it it actually was to our credit that we made quite a lot of work that failed to do that, that failed to perform on the kind of major international scene. I mean, it's quite easy to, to perform on the international scene if you strip it of content and you make it out of fibreglass and, you know, make it 50 metres big. <laughs> um, I, there was something that you said in an interview and I was intrigued by it. You said that you mentioned artists from the 80s in interviews and they would get cut out. So now's, oh, your, yeah. now's your time to mention some artists Uh-oh. from the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, to be honest, now a lot of these artists are very fashionable, to be honest. Peter Greenaway and Derek Jarman. I mean, Derek Jarman's had a sort of major, major revival. But I remember, you know, m- magazine editors doing me a favour and editing him out of interviews for the sake of, you know, a young artist's career. You do not want your artists associated with someone like that. Because they were particularly worried that there was this 
sort of camp unfocus to the work, which, I mean, has since become sort of reclaimed. But people would really edit that stuff out. I mean, at the, at the time, I think there was a kind of cult of brutalism, retro-modern, mixed with sort of remnants of the YBAs, and things felt like they had to be straightforward, clean-cut, easy to get, or if not, that they had to be really rough and really gritty and really about, in speech marks, the problems of everyday life, you know. So at the time, I think Stephen Willats was having a sort of big comeback and so on. So, so I think that this interest in this kind of 80s and 70s whimsicality was, was really not kosher, you know. It seems odd to me because Jarman, he seems such a sort of centre point for so much of what was good about the British avant-garde in that period. And and I, I agree with you that he's definitely having a moment again now. Lots of people are looking at him again now. Um, but I can imagine the young Pablo seeing those films and being quite amazed by them. And they, they were often presented on, you know, at nine o'clock on Channel 4 one evening. And there were a whole load of us that were watching those films and going, wow. Right. When there are only two or three channels, everybody watched the same things, you know. I mean, I remember seeing an Isaac Julian film that completely sort of radically shifted my idea of what was possible, you know, what was visible on television, you know. I mean, I think the problem with a lot of that stuff, with a lot of German films, is that it's almost kind of unwatchable, you know. It's Some of it is unbelievably pretentious and really stodgy, narcissistic rubbish you know there's a lot of it I mean Peter Greenaway also I mean this is this is stuff that you have to trawl through an awful lot I got something from it and if people sort of watch that stuff and they say I bloody hated that I mean I seriously can't blame them for it (laughs) all of that stuff I think when I was starting to make art but once I'd sort of taken seriously the idea of being an artist I mean I'd always made art but the fact that it could become something professional all of that world was at its lowest possible ebb. So postmodernism in, in, say, the year 2000 was seriously despised. I mean, it was... Architects were absolutely horrified that I was thinking about Terry Farrell, for example. They just couldn't believe that I was going to make work for, about it. And it's quite interesting. The little book I made about postmodern architecture in London was the first time that someone had published a book about postmodernism from the time that postmodernism was at its height like it hadn't been written about it was nothing it was ignore it please so I I think these editors were worried that I was sort of digging a grave for myself that I was sort of exposing my interests that were going to be too close to what I was doing somehow. Do you ever have a struggle to convince people that you were actually really interested in that stuff you know in a way because you could you could view those if you were a modernist by saying, oh, look at these brilliantly ironic takes on, mm. on how crap postmodern architecture is. Yeah. Did you, at that time, sort of have, have to convince people that actually that wasn't what the work was about? Well, some people really did think I was doing that. Um, and a lot of architects, I think, read that book thinking, ha, 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 that's really funny. But to be honest, in order to stick with the subject matter, there has to be a certain amount of... Either you've got to have a serious burning hatred for something, you know, which, I mean, it's architecture, it's pointless to have a hatred for you know a plastic pediment or, or you've got to sort of love it enough that you want to sort of revisit it one of the things that's interested me is that you grew up in a suburban area mm. and I think there were a lot of suburban kids and I count myself as one of them who who loved pretentious stuff because it was an escape from suburbia precisely because of that 
And I wonder, retrospectively, do you look back at that and, and see something like why so many suburban kids love Bowie? It's why Bowie was a suburban kid who was tremendously pretentious to a certain degree. Yes, being really bored, staring out of a window down a cul-de-sac is can be good for the imagination. I mean, it's not always good for the imagination, but it can be. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of think that it's good for the imagination if you're already in the frame of mind to sort of see beyond the matrix, as it were. But if you're entirely within that world, I think it's probably trickier. But I mean, you know, punk is a suburban movement. You know, I, I think that boredom is crucial. To, I, I'm glad I didn't grow up with a mobile phone. At this point, I asked people which works they have around them as they work. So things that have pinned to the studio wall or whatever. We're in the space which you use for drawing. It's not your primary space because you also have a space you work in in Deal on on the Kent coast in in England. But to what extent do you have things around you when you're working deliberately? And to what extent do you just have the things you live with around you? Um, Just the things I live with. But I mean, the things I live with just get incorporated into works, silverware and so on. I don't have kind of reference images pinned up, but I will have the books open and left out. Yeah. I was conscious of that when I was watching the video at the same museum that you know, I'd seen images of you with um, sugar casters and here in the film was a whole section about sugar casters. And in a way, there was a sort of cocking a snook at your own collecting, your own infatuation, perhaps, with these with these objects or whatever. Is that is that the case? Yes. I mean, a bit, but I love the things, yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sort of sending myself up, but it's quite easy to because I collect 18th century silver sugar casters. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's a really ridiculous activity <laughs> tell me about your collection because I, I'm, I'm genuinely intrigued by this collection but because so so how many do you have is it like collecting anything else in the sense that the best is the enemy of the good and all that kind of stuff a bit but to be honest in this world of highly conventional forms anything that is a little bit different is already an impressive feat i have to control myself from buying repeated shapes but the sort of the fact that they look like these sort of perfect phallic objects with ornament encrusted on them is just too much for me to resist. So I could just buy these things again and again and again. But and now I'm trying to behave like a sort of more serious connoisseur collector and buying things that I don't have and so on. I want to publish a book about them. I just need to find someone with £20,000 to spare. <laughs> if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. The app offers access to around 50 cultural institutions through a single download, with new partners being added every month. Follow Bloomberg Connects on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and stay tuned as new digital guides are announced. The social channels also offer a sneak peek of some of the app's exclusive content. Among the recent additions are the Fourth Plinth in London, the Judd Foundation and the Hammer Museum. If you download the Hammer's Guide, you'll find resources to complement its exhibition programme. The show Witch Hunt, for example, presents the work of 16 women artists, including Candice Bright, a recent guest on this podcast. And you can hear the curators reflect on the work of all the contributing artists in the app. To explore interactive guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. You can find the app at bloombergconnects.org. It's also available to download from the App Store and Google Play. Let's talk about museums. Uh, which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? Uh, Tate or the National Gallery. I like big museums that I can sort of wander around aimlessly and occasionally see stuff 
in. Um, I like the fact that I know where certain paintings are and I can ignore certain rooms or go into certain other rooms. I, I really like Get A Coffee. I, I just love those the, the larger museums are really up my street. Um, in, in terms of small museums, I mean, the Sony Museum I've been countless times. I mean, there's lots of things that I repeat, Kenwood House, you know. Uh, museums that have a fantastic collection of 10 things are also always great, but it's, it's the big ones, really. Yeah. I, mean, I wanted to talk about the Met because obviously you have a kind of particular relationship with the Met because quite early on in your career, actually, you had a show at the Met. Mm. Um, and then you since made work about the Met in the years after that. Mm. So did your particular interest in the Met emerge from that first invitation to show there or were you always intrigued by it as an institution? I think, I, look, I, I think that the works that I made for that show or made subsequently were related to the experience of showing there. So as an institution, it doesn't interest me any more than, say, the British Museum or the National Gallery. But there is something about that building, that actual structure, which interests me because it's a, it's a really good example of Beaux-Arts, which is this very, very modern way of building that essentially disguises the fact with cladding techniques. So the Metropolitan Museum is really a very clever building. You know, it's a, it's a very sophisticated building. And so I'm pretty drawn to it as a structure, more so than I am to these very good quality early 19th century buildings like, say, you know, the British Museum building and so on. The Beaux-Arts style I mean, I, I think is is the preeminent style of the 20th century. And it convinces you that it's a lot older, that it's been around for a lot longer, that it's going to survive a lot longer than anything else that you see. And I'm just fascinated by that, that level of sort of sophistication, that the kind of creation of imagery on top of a steel frame, which then, of course, gets replicated and parodied in postmodernism. To what extent is that interest in Beauvoir a sort of legacy of Argentina? Because, of course, you, is it right that your grandmother's home was was a, quite a grand Beaux-Arts building? Yes, I mean, it, yes, it, it, it was. I mean, it was a sort of, it was a, a nice sort of bourgeois family house in this kind of franglais-type style. But it's very related to Argentina because the whole of Buenos Aires is sort of lacquered in, in Beaux-Arts architectural motifs I mean huge apartment blocks with sort of 15 stories that are are sort of ornamented with cupolas and swags and pediments and so on and so forth I mean more so than than I'd say almost any other uh, city in the Americas except perhaps for uh, New York or Chicago. Right and and then when you came to make the work for the Met you chose to do both the collection and the building right so there was an interesting balance there so on the one hand you have these kind of fake images of mm. the, the the Met being constructed as if it was a much earlier building yeah and then on the other hand you pick out certain elements of the collection so the Grand Tiepolo work which was, which came later yeah but for instance you focused on pre-Columbian collection and about the presentation of those so yeah. it seemed to me that there was a sort of attempt to sort of grapple with the sort of extraordinary breadth of the building and the building itself yeah uh, thank you I mean it was a very small show so I had to sort of be quite careful what the focuses were in the show but the show aimed to set up a kind of spurious history of the museum there was a sort of a a series of works about these fantasies about the way that work might be transported into the museum or might be sort of dragged over from Egypt stone by stone or whatever it might be and there were also 
spurious hangs for pre-Columbine objects and ideas for turning the museum into sort of a plate book for decorative schemes um, in the 18th century style. So um, lots of things like that. And there was also a kind of hypothetical future of the museum that were these series of computer drawings. And so it was really about moving the museum backwards to a past that it didn't have or future to a future that is unlikely to happen, rather than sort of looking at the museum as an institution that I can represent, you know, nowadays. It was it was about the, the pull backwards or forwards that the museum was wanting me to have. I mean, wanting me in the sense that Beaux Arts wants you to look back when you look at these buildings. And what was behind the choice of the Tieplo? Because it's such a symbolic image. And I was wondering why you chose that out of all the grand paintings from Europe that came to the Met. Why that? Uh, because it's the biggest, really. And because it was a kind of enormous thing to get up the stairs. I'm assuming it came up the stairs. It probably came up rolled. But I mean, the point of Beaux-Art is that it creates a false building construction. So you assume that these enormous pillars must have been sort of dragged over, carved from, you know, Carrara or whatever. They're probably sort of, it's a sachet that was emptied out into some water and then sort of these little bits were sort of assembled around a steel frame. So all of the kind of construction around these buildings is is modern, but it's phrased in an epic way. The works around Paternoster Square were the same, you know, these ideas around history and building techniques and longevity and permanence and so on as strategies for convincing you that the institution is more important or, or convincing you that this structure always existed, whereas in fact with somewhere like Paternoster Square the site is very contested uh, and so on. So that sort of thing is architecture putting style to use um, and so that's what I was really focusing on. I wanted to talk about the Paternoster Square works because I walked through it on the way here today (laughs) (laughs) because I wanted to have a look at it again because I'd sort of been through that space and I hadn't really noticed it in the same way. But it was a tremendously politically divisive space on the Mm. one hand. It's this space very very close to St Paul's Cathedral that is decorated with postmodern buildings which... And and this links to what you've been doing very recently. It, there are Georgian pastiches in amongst those buildings, mm-hmm. and in fact, a, an, an actual old building which therefore confuses that whole feel. Mm-hmm. So, can you say something about that square and why it's significant? And because the erection of the sort of column in Paternoster Square is a very very early drawing of yours, isn't it? Uh, yes, I, I mean it was contested. I think primarily because. It's a very sensitive area, right? And it became this sort of battleground between, you know, and around how you reconfigure public or semi-public space in a historically sensitive area. It also feels more public, which is partly classicism being put to use. I remember going and taking photographs there all I wanted when it was an enormous bit of slab that no one was interested in. And now you try to take a photograph there and security guards come running at you. So clearly it is a less public space than it was, despite the fact that it is using a whole load of language of piazzas and openness and free space, which is, of course, entirely false in real terms, but it presents it. I think that the clever use of old and new... By clever, I mean, I don't think it's particularly well executed. I think it's pretty disgusting. But the the fact that they're doing it is a good fudge because most people can't read buildings. It, uh, and that works to the advantage of certain people. A lot of people can't read architectural drawings, can't read plans, for example. A lot of people can't read a facade and they will think it looks old because 
it's got a sash window that was made three years ago stuck onto it. You know, that's sort of enough very often. I mean, it's it's an eye-opener for me because I'm sort of obsessed with architecture. I look at it all the time. I'm exactly the same when it comes to fashion. I cannot tell the difference between a suit that costs £150 and that costs £5,000. They look the same to me. I, I could give a shit either way. But some people can just look you up and down and can tell whether, that you, whether you've got £5 on you or £500 on you. With architecture, I'm a bit better at reading than your average because I'm obsessed. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? It would have probably been a contemporary art exhibition at somewhere like the ICA or something, either at the ICA or the Haywood. I can't remember. I was very small. We just got to England or a year or two afterwards. And there was an exhibition, I think, that was connected to the Falklands War, or at least in my head, it's like that. And there was a kind of enormous saber-toothed tiger sculpture. I don't, I, I don't know if it was good or bad or something, but it was very, very glamorous contemporary art everything was white everything was spotlit it looked cool you know and 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 I was very young and it sort of transfixed me as a kind of moment I still remember it I mean I've no idea who the artist was actually yeah but but it basically it gave you a kind of sense that there was this thing called contemporary art and it existed in these kinds of spaces that seemed alien up until that point yeah I think so I think so it was impactful art you know it showed me that the impact, uh, which I think is important, because if not, it's quite hard to want to leave the suburbs, do you know what I mean, in order to go and see it, unless you think you're going to get that hit. Which writers or poets do you return to the most? Well, I mean, my partner's a poet now and I, I look at all of his work, so I'm reading a lot of poetry, but I like Zola. I like that messy sort of 19th century raw description of people and machines and poverty and industrialization and horror and so on. The the train crash in The Beast in Man is so shocking so it's such a great description have you read it yeah uh, years ago crazy scene you just can't believe it it's like ballard who's another person i love i read crash the other day for the first time I mean, i've read a lot of ballard but I, I sort of put off crash somehow but i don't know why and i i'm just amazed by his ability to just lay it all out it's the filthiest book i've ever read by a long shot <laughs> you know it's amazing and it's not it's gratuitously filthy but he makes it clear that he is implicated in it do you know what I mean mm. and Zola as well they're they're engaged they're involved in it. it they're critiquing themselves within it they're humiliating themselves for our benefit amazing yeah Ballard Zola yeah have you read High Rise by Ballard and yeah. if that, because obviously I mean you haven't made a tremendous amount of work about high modernism really in in, in lots of ways or in, or tower block life or whatever but but there it seems to me that there are similar concerns within that book about a lot of what you're talking about in terms of human behavior in space mm. i've made a few works about, about skyscraper but you're right not significantly i think partly because uh the ornamentation in them is always really secondary there's a few bits at the top if they are kind of deco skyscrapers very often it's just sort of you know ways that you overlay glass onto steel i'm not particularly interested in the shapes of these buildings but i am very interested in what they represent i think that this sort of new needle type building that you're getting in New York in Manhattan is really fascinating because they're astonishingly beautiful um, but they just represent everything that's wrong in the world you know and they coexist as a kind of 
perfect emblem. I also like the kind of the horror these buildings, you know, the the way that they go wrong, the kind of the threat of collapse, the defiance of gravity. They're they're great theatrical pieces, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Um, in Helen, it's heyday. There is, of course, the casino building, which has that very sheer mirrored front hmm. above that extraordinary ornate fountain of Venus. So, so it seems to me that there you were able to explore. I mean, it's such it's such a polymorphous kind of architectural landscape that you created there. But it seems to me that that was again, you know, you could in that sheer vastness you created, you could explore such a broad range of architectural styles. Well, well that frontage in that building it is a kind of bow art sort of pulled apart as much as possible you know so you've got this kind of overt historicism and this constructional modernism and seen through this kind of pomo pleasure of the fragment and the um, and the juxtaposition there's also some high rises at the back of the cake drawing as well um, in a slightly sort of deliberately goofy juxtaposition between these two sorts of structures the cakes and the buildings let's talk about music what music do you listen to while you're working classical music almost Always. I mean, I I went through a phase when I was a kind of indie kid, but I've stopped putting the pixies on whenever I sort of feel a bit miserable. I can't be bothered. There's more to life than that. (laughs) Um, And so it's mostly Baroque. I listen to a lot of symphonic music, opera, lots of stuff. Um, I play the harpsichord and the piano, but I listen mostly to audiobooks while I'm working. Oh, that's interesting. I was going to ask you about levels of concentration, because, of course, one of the things about the kind of drawings that you're making is that that you have areas where, as you say, you might be applying wash, uh, which will therefore be more broader brush, but there there will be extremely intricate moments. And I just wonder if you change your listening according to the kind of different levels of labour or intensity of labour that you do. Yes. So, for example, when I'm composing a work, when I'm thinking about where things should go, the big decisions that have to happen early on, I can't listen to any music at all. Um, Nothing should really interfere in my head with that sort of stuff because it will end up really sort of convincing me that something is good when it isn't good um and I need that sort of because sometimes we listen to work because it bolsters us up you know it makes us feel good and we shouldn't necessarily I shouldn't feel that good at those moments and then I think once I begin to do stuff that is more automatic coloring in you know shading so on I can listen to absolutely anything as long as it's not too complicated so for example something like Zola or Ballard is great because it's pretty easy to follow narrative that's really cleanly described it's fantastic I I couldn't handle something seriously complicated in the way it was written Um, and also I mean similarly Agatha Christie makes you want to shoot yourself in the head it's so (laughs) how would you describe it just dumb um i mean i did go through a sort of period of of listening to a lot of murder mystery dorothy sayers also who's better than agatha christie by far i think but in any case i I went through a lot of reading stuff because i like that resolution that nearly is it actually magic what's going on is this possible to explain and actually oh yes it is possible this is really complicated but it is so i i did go through a period of listening to all that stuff Uh, and i also went through a period of listening to a lot of the kind of pop science stuff also but you're filling your head with shit basically you know (laughs) is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual um not really no i'm also not someone who who actually has a complicated 
practice technically I, it's not as if I need to mix my own colors or anything like that I just sort of open the ink and I can go I spend a lot of time buying stuff on eBay or at auction so I will flick through a whole bunch of auction catalogs a day just to see the stuff that I want to buy and that I can't afford or that I'm thinking of buying or something like that you know that's a kind of ritual whether I'm working or not do you ever feel like I need to be in deal or I need to be in London to do this particular group or single item of work yes I I do generally make the larger work in in deal um, and if I need to sort of focus on something pretty complex I go there. I mean, London, it, it's very difficult to concentrate here and you get invited to a lot of things and there's a lot of stuff to do. So, yeah, um, I, I'll do little things or the etchings or this or that here. But um, generally speaking, it's in deal that I, that I work. Yeah. Yeah. And what about when you're making performances? Do you have locations where those collaborative moments happen that aren't the space that they'll be performed in, as it were? So do you work in a kind of dance studio? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, very often rehearse in Siobhan Davies' dance studio in South London. I think it also depends. I mean, we did a lot of work in this really sort of fun, very crummy theatre in South London which is really great. I actually filmed a whole load of stuff there. I've yet to edit it. I mean, I filmed it years ago. But... And actually, a lot of that stuff is, you know, sort of resolved over coffee. You know, you sort of meet up with people and discuss what you want to do. Um, and that is a very, very different situation to the kind of me and the sea and the sort of dripping tap of deal, you know. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk about Sprezzatura because it's this particular, um, and it, you can explain it way better than I can, this particular cultural form of movement mm. That evolved. So tell us about it first. And I want to ask you about to what extent do you have to work quite hard to get the dancers to take it on board? Sprezzatura is a language of physical comportment that tells the world that the person doing it is elegant and sophisticated and doesn't do a manual job for a living. And this developed in the 15th century in Italy and was codified by the early 16th century into a manual called the Book of the Courtier that was then sort of expanded upon by dancing instructors and dancing manuals and comportment manuals and manners and so on that spread throughout the European courts and that then ended up becoming further codified into Baroque and then classical ballet and that we now associate with campness in men, with sort of hysterical women, with ballet where it still exists with sort of drag performance and so on um it's a kind of floppy wrist look uh, it can be more elegantly composed it can be really flappy and hysterical in italy i think they refer to sprezzatura as a kind of natural elegance kind of ease of living but uh, i'm not interested in it for those reasons i'm really more interested in it as a kind of signifier of homosexuality really yeah. or of sort of some kind of in speech marks decadence or non-virility in speech marks and so on because it also allows you to connect with historical art objects in the 16th and 17th century pretty much every single pose in every single painting or sculpture was in some form of sprezzatura or contrapposto i work with contemporary dancers that have some kind of classical training so they are able to sort of do it naturally but my main collaborator is rosalie Walfrid um, who just oozes this stuff right she's got these hands that could you know she could be on the prices right gliding her hand over a car you know <laughs> she's got that that sort of movement of fingers and that's I think you can't learn that level of it you can sort of get a kind of classical hand or you know get it to look quite easy but not at the level where sort of everything you do is just oozing class and glamour in that kind of tacky cliched way because in the performance at, in the Duveen Galleries at Tate Britain, I was really conscious at how actually controlled 
it was. And that element of control is really necessary, isn't it? Because it can't just be excess in movement. It has to be deeply controlled. And, and it seemed to me that you drilled the dancers really well because they seem very controlled in some ways. Yes. Well, well, the important thing is that it's a language that you have to communicate with. You have to be able to use these gestures in order to convince other people or something. So your personal experience inside is really quite irrelevant in all of this, at least as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't need the person inside to feel elegant. I just need them to hold their hands in an elegant way. And so when we were doing the interview process, a number of people clearly were channeling elegance and gorgeousness, but they weren't communicating it through their gesture. So yes, there has to be a good degree of professional control, absolutely. And also they have to be able to physically hold their hands up in a particular pose, in a classical pose, for a good few minutes or, or to repeat the gesture again and again. And that requires a lot of physical discipline. They need to be properly trained dancers. If not, you get cool camp people flapping around, which is fine. I do that. But I don't think I could do that for six months every day, you know, without <laughs> developing a serious back injury. <laughs> if you could live with one work of art, what would it be? I mean, it would be really fun to have this kind of enormous silver Paul de Lamery centerpiece from like the early 18th century with like, you know, whatever cherubs holding shells up full of grapes and stuff. I mean, it'd be really fun to have a level of silverware that was absolutely out of control, shockingly ostentatious. <laughs> and lastly, what's artful? What's it for? I mean, it's kind of for getting an applause for having made a mess with your wee wee and poo poo, isn't it? Really? <laughs> that's, that's what it's, that's what we're doing. I think that's it. <laughs> Pat Blake, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pablo Bronstein's Hell in its Heyday is at Sir John Soane's Museum in London until the 2nd of January 2022. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our other podcasts, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the art newspaper podcasts are Julia Mihauska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Benville, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jalla. Big thank you to Pablo Bronstein. See you next week when it's a brush with Isaac Julian. Bye for now. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.